Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. For decades, audiences could enjoy music by the famous, the near famous, and the not so famous at an intimate little place called the Exit Inn on Elliston Place in Nashville. With the other businesses on both sides of the street, the area became known as the Rock Block. Today, the future of the venue is uncertain, but the Center for Historic Preservation is trying to get Exit Inn added to the National Register of Historic Places. Jennifer Ruck, a doctoral candidate in MTSU's public history program, is working on it. We'll talk with her about it after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Low-income MTSU students needing help with child care costs can apply for about 40 grants of around $1,000 each semester beginning fall 2022. The program, put into place with the December closing of the child care lab at Womack Lane Apartments, will allow MTSU to greatly expand the number of students seeking assistance. The child care lab, which opened in August 1981, served about 24 children ages 3 to 5 daily. However, in recent months, it was restricted to serving only 13 children daily due to COVID-19 safety measures. The lab opened in the summer of 1981 within the Womack Lane complex of 192 on-campus apartments used by students with families as well as single students. And a recent $25,000 donation from HCA Healthcare Incorporated and HCA Healthcare Foundation to the MTSU Charlie and Hazel Daniels Veterans and Military Family Center will jumpstart the new Avery King Memorial Scholarship Fund. The donation was part of $150,000 the company donated to veteran support organizations. They included Reboot Recovery, A Soldier's Child, Operation Stand Down Tennessee, and MTSU's Daniels Center. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for being with us on the program. Thank you for having me. In the interest of full disclosure, as a DJ in the 1970s, I hosted several remote broadcasts from the Exit Inn over a Nashville radio station. It was a wonderful place to hear music. Uh, I was happy about the fact that more attention was paid to the acoustics than the decor. That was the place at the time. And uh, so what can you tell us about the history of the Exit Inn? What have you discovered? Well, you know, for a space that is so rooted in alternative performance within, you know, sort of this hub of mainstream country music in Nashville, its legacy is is a long one. And sort of the breadth of the performance there, um, it, it's really so diverse. It's community centered. Um, you know, the early days of the accident in the early 70s. So, you know, established in 1971, it really starts off as a listening room. It starts off, you know, as a smaller venue um, where songwriters and musicians that mostly were local to Nashville could come in and, you know, kind of flex their muscles a little bit. And, you know, it's not really in towards uh, or until the end of the 70s that we see sort of this expansion. We're knocking down walls, we're adding carpets, we're expanding the kitchens. Um, to sort of make way for this as kind of a hub for rock performance in Nashville. So it's had many faces. It's had many owners. Um, you know, uh, the financial history of the exit is always something interesting to look into. Um, but despite all of that, it, it kind of remains as this, you know, alternative jewel that still exists in Nashville um, where, 
many of these spaces were short-lived or um, kind of fell away to, you know, finances or um, kind of overshadowed by what Nashville, you know, is is so interested in, and, and that is mainstream country music. So to see a space that still exists, that is still thriving, that is still so community-centered and publicly facing and committed to diversity in the way that it shows um, performances um, is really telling of the importance of it and why it's so important that, you know, myself and Dr. West with the CHP are, are so interested in making sure it's protected. There used to be a Tower Records store across the street, and of course, uh, that was back when people were actually buying cassette tapes and 33 and 3rd record albums, and I remember doing a remote from the Rock Block in which the Elliston Place Merchants Association asked me to get in at least one plug for uh, a business on the end of the street that uh, sold wheelchairs and canes and walkers. Uh, it was fairly near what used to be called Baptist Hospital at the time, and people uh, of a certain age or people with infirmities would go there to get, you know, these medical devices. So you'd see grandma and grandpa down there with the long-haired hippies walking across the street, and it was a, a, a place where everybody got along. Uh, musically, it has been likened to the troubadour in Los Angeles and the bottom line in New York. Is, do you think that's an apt comparison? I really do. You know, when you're talking about spaces of, you know, any counterculture of any sort, really, um, you need infrastructure. You need this, you know, architectural space, whether it be this grand ballroom. And we know for, you know, the exit in at least it's it's four black walls, essentially. Um, but you need infrastructure. And I, I genuinely believe that Alliston Place, that whole area, it becomes the infrastructure for what makes it so great because it's so community centered and because it's so in tune with what's going on in the neighborhood. I feel like that says a lot about um, how long the legacy has been and why it still exists. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it, creating that infrastructure for um, any sort of counterculture um, or any sort of underground, if you'd like to call it that, I would definitely call um, the accident part of the underground of Nashville um, to really thrive. So, yeah. What has happened with the ownership of the venue and how has it come to find itself in its current circumstances? So in the long history, uh, the exit's ownership um, mainly has to do with financial acuity. It has to do with um, trying to find, you know, a space for themselves where they're not just breaking even. Now, recently, um, the most recent ownership change, actually, uh, we were a little nervous for a little while, um, not really sure uh, what the future was for the exit and sort of where we stood in trying to preserve the space and whether the new ownership was interested in that. So um, actually, in the process of writing this nomination, which has been going on since Oh gosh, um, about a year and a half at this point. Um, so early on in this, we kind of had to shelve everything because we really didn't know where it was going and um, you know if that was an interest for them. Because you know, when something's federally protected, there are things that um, for live music venues, it's it's harder to maintain. And in sort of the the broader sort of preservation. Um, initiative for these spaces, it makes it more difficult to preserve them. So we were really hopeful that they would be interested. Um, and so now the gears are kind of turning again. We were able to go do a field visit. Um, I think it was six to eight months ago, we were able to get in there and kind of, you know, 
look at this gem that we've been talking about and researching for, you know, for so long. So um, I have hope that this, this, this nomination and um, it's going to gain traction. So many people are behind it. I mean, you probably saw that social media campaign when ownership was changing. Um, it was incredible how devoted and loyal people were to the space. So um, I have hope. I, I think there's, um, there's room for optimism here with this nomination for sure. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Jennifer Ruck. She's a doctoral candidate in MTSU's public history program, and she's working on getting the exit in in Nashville added to the National Register of Historic Places. What has your research into the exit in been like? What are your sources and how do you find them? Initially, I always start with local newspapers. Those are usually just your first step and kind of getting a, a bearing on what's out there. So the Tennessean was a huge help uh, to find lots of these sources. Billboard Magazine was another um, that really gave us a, a deep dive into sort of the international scope of how people were paying attention to the exit. So lots of local newspapers, and there were a few journalists in this area that really paid attention uh, to the exit. So we were actually positively overwhelmed with what existed out there just based on local uh, journalism. And, you know, I did get to kind of pull from, in terms of primary documents and um, secondary, looking at some of the autobiographies from other artists that had performed there forever and ever. You know, you've got folks like Marty Stewart, who talk a lot about the exit. Jimmy Buffett talked a lot about the exit. Even Steve Martin has done interviews about his time at the exit. So um, all those things just sort of float around out there. And it just kind of took us a moment to to gather in on those sources and kind of get a hold on um, how much material was out there because it was really surprising. What does the National Register of Historic Places require in order to make the list? What's the process like? One, there needs to be obviously an era of significance and um, you know, what does it add not just to the local um, historical significance, but nationally. Um, and for the longest time, I think, uh, the 50 year rule is what a lot of people think of when they think of the National Register. Um, and Dr. West has proven that wrong a few times. Uh, one being the Grand Ole Opry House, he was able to get that on the National Register a little bit early. Um, and then architectural significance plays a huge, a huge part in this. And um, that's been one of the difficulties in sort of writing this, this nomination. You know, we're talking about four walls. We're talking about, you know, something you don't walk in and it's not this architectural gem. And I think for many music venues, that tends to be the hardest hurdle to tackle. Um, and I do believe that's changing. I think that we're sort of kind of, you know, manipulating and kind of bending um, 
significance to to try to shy away from that part of it because there's so much more to a music space that has to do with collective memory and experience and and local significance, community significance. So I think that was the biggest hurdle for us going into this was knowing that on the architectural side of this, we're really going to have to um, push really hard to sort of, you know, recenter our focus that's that's not so centered on the fact that it's just like four walls that have been painted black and, um, you know, a, a cemented green room, <laughs> you know, things like that. So, yeah. The names that have played there who have gone on to fame and fortune are many and varied country, blues, rock, Americana. Isn't there a wall where the names of various artists are painted on it? Yeah, so if you walk into the exit and you turn to the right and look over the bar area, there's an entire wall with all of the names of those artists that have played, you know, some of them being super recent artists, some of them being, you know, long time. And it actually, it actually reminded me of the Hacienda in Manchester. When you go visit that space now, it's just an entire wall full of, you know, in metal carved out the names of the folks that have played there. You go to the Cavern Club, they've got everybody's names on the outside in brick in Liverpool. So it's sort of this wall of memory. It's this living space. It's still very fluid. It's active. And you know, if you're a first time attendee to the exit, you walk in and you can look up at the wall and just say like, wow, you know, look at all the history that came before this, this night that I'm here. Um, and it's, it's a great reminder for those entering the space that it's not just a live music venue. It's far more than that. Um, it really speaks to the ways that the underground existed in Nashville and the ways that we're really pushing to identify and acknowledge that today. So how much work do you have to put into this and, and how much evidence do you have to present and how long does it take the National Register to respond to you? Yeah, sure. So there are a couple teams that, you know, that work on these nominations. Um, first, it's just the historical recognizance. It's just you doing the historical footwork, you know, basically creating a historiography for the space. Um, and then really narrowing in on that, that era of significance, you know, for the exit in, um, the longer history of the building is, is it's pretty broad. Um, so narrowing in on when we believe this space actually really just hits the nail on the head for why it's so important. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, the physical space work that goes along with this. So um, taking pictures of the space, walking around the space, basically outlining the architectural work of it, and then submitting that work uh, to the National Register. And many times, and this is not uncommon for music spaces, um, especially those that are still live and working. And, you know, usually you might get that draft back and they might have some suggestions for you and things that might need to be changed. And, and in our experience with the exit, you know, we received our draft back and really had to kind of recenter and find our find our frame here for, for pushing for that significance. So um, it's a lot of trial and error and it's a lot of kind of reworking what you know. And it's not the first time that Dr. West has dealt with, you know, oh, we sent your your nomination back. So um, he wasn't discouraged by me being the grad student. I was like, oh gosh, what can we do better? But really an incredible experience in working not just with a federal agency, but with those on the ground and those experts who have been doing this forever. Dr. Carol Van West is the person to whom uh, Jennifer refers. He is the 
uh, director of the Center for Historic Preservation and the Tennessee State Historian. So he has been down this road a time or two and he knows the territory. He does. <laughs> we'll take another break here. We'll return in a moment. This is MTSU on the record. NTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about trying to get the exit in in Nashville on the National Register of Historic Places and heading up that charge is Jennifer Rudd, doctoral candidate in MTSU's public history program, and she's been working uh, at this effort. Is there still a market for intimate live music venues like this in the age of digital streaming and downloads? I think that there's always a pushback when there's technological advance in the way that we consume music. Um, You know, being a native to Texas and spending a lot of time in the Austin area, I think there's always this yearning for those intimate spaces, those smaller venues um, where you feel like, and I hate to use this word because it's such a can of worms, where you feel like you've had this authentic experience. Um, So I always think that there, there is a need for those spaces and they're different experiences. You know, going to Bridgestone Arena for a concert is not the same thing as going to a show at Ryman and at the exit end. So they all serve different purposes, but I think they're just as important as the other. It's amazing to me that the exit end sprang up in the 70s uh, on the edge of the era of Arena Rock, where there was no Bridgestone yet, and all of the Arena Rock bands were being booked into the Municipal Auditorium, which was built as an all-purpose facility and was definitely not built uh, as a music venue and you know you hear journey or sticks or uh, some of these bands and the sound would just bounce off the back wall because you know you could put a car show in there the next day you know and uh, our parents had the uh, privilege of being able to go to little nightclubs and see crooners uh, big band era artists uh, jazz singers uh, uh and go to little blues clubs and hear little three-person combos and such as that. I, I, I think our generation would love to uh, have the same intimacy associated with whatever types of music we'd like to listen to. Absolutely. I, you know, I come from a very musically driven family. We're not musicians. We just love to listen to music. Um, but my grandfather had those same experiences. You know, he would drive into these tiny little juke joints in East Austin and sit there and listen to Little Richard and Ray Charles and all of these incredible experiences that, you know, I, I think there are two different needs or several different needs when you're talking about going to a show. And I think that there's always a generational resurgence in our interest in certain kinds of music. And I think that the exit is just 
one of those spaces that reminds us that, you know, there are patterns in the way that we yearn for certain kinds of American music. And it's just a reminder of that. And we always circle back to it. We always circle back to it, whether it's the way we listen to music. You know, we had the vinyl resurgence about 10 years ago and everybody's all of a sudden wanting to buy up vinyl. Um, so I think it's, it's patterned and I think it's just human nature um, and the way that we actually consume music and our, our brains hear music differently than we hear spoken words. So I think it's just human nature to crave music in a way that's personal, in a way that's individual. And I think that small intimate spaces like the exit, like other venues, you know, um, in that area, they really play to that need. Let's talk about your doctoral dissertation, which is about a combination of punk and roots music in the South and the Southwest and the West in the 1980s. When I was a DJ, punk was just coming on and we had to play it because it was the happening thing, the coming thing. And because uh, record promoters would probably have your head if they couldn't get that as an ad. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we're playing country rock, Charlie Daniels, Marshall Tucker and such, and never the twain shall meet as far as some of their fans were concerned, based on some of the calls we'd get on the uh, call-in lines uh, from uh, listeners. Tell us why you, you picked that topic and how these two styles uh, eventually came to, to meet and to know each other. Because when I was playing the records, the 33 and a thirds, even the redneck freaks, so-called, would not play punk if their life depended on it. I went to school in Central Texas and I had an incredible interest in psychedelic music in Austin in the late 60s and sort of how that kind of intertangled with this progressive country movement that pops up in the early 70s. So this idea of musical hybrids and kind of the way that they shape our attitudes and shape countercultures has always been something that I've been interested in. And so moving here and beginning this degree, I wanted to stay on the same path, but I just wanted to explore a different intersection. Um, and it's really one of the two the two most unlikely forms of, of American music and the way that they intersect once you actually get to know the style, it's really not that surprising why they intersect. And, and a lot of it has to do with these musicians and the way that they, you know, have reverence for earlier styles. It's always about musical resurgence. And so for the cowpunk folks, attitudes of rebellion, these attitudes of anti-mainstream and anti-establishment, really coincided with some of the earlier forms of American roots music. And they're calling upon the same idea of the outlaw and, you know, the loner. Um, so to see the intersection happen in Nashville and it happens, you know, elsewhere, it happens in LA, it happens in Austin as well. Um, but to see it flourish in Nashville um, was really a topic I couldn't shy away from. And, and also it's not something that's been written heavily about uh, within the academic vein. I just couldn't pass it up. And incredibly, there are so many people that you can still talk to in this area. So to tell a story that does not fit within the mainstream vein of country music and, and that is overshadowed by the industry-driven um, city that is Nashville, I felt was really important to bring that to the surface and talk about musical hybrids in a way that make sense for people regionally. You know, we all understand our music regionally and it made sense to speak to something that was, you know, generational. It was brief, but nonetheless important to tell that story. Could it have had anything whatsoever to do in the South 
with the fact that uh, country music's roots are from a lot of Irish and Scottish folk music, if you go way, way, way back. And that perhaps uh, Southerners who like punk could perhaps appreciate the British punk style more so than say the Ramones who are so associated with New York. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see that for sure, especially when you're talking about Appalachian music and you're talking about that Scottish and Irish roots. I mean, today, if you go to Scotland during the summer, uh, they have a country music festival. It's just such a weird thing to, to kind of stumble upon um, during the summer. But I definitely think that that could, could have been an influencer. But I also think we're just talking about a younger generation of folks who are, are coming of age, you know, between the ages of 18 and 25, sort of disillusioned with the popular music that their parents loved and maybe disillusioned with the pop music that they're kind of, you know, exposed to and looking to create something different for themselves. But I definitely think that that could have been a factor. You all already have a wealth of experience both in Texas and in Tennessee with the Center for Historic Preservation at the Grand Ole Opry as an Opry ambassador with the Oral History Association. So ultimately, what do you want to do with your doctorate? I've worked in collections um, for a long time since my master's degree, and I'm really interested in the ways that popular music exists within the museum. How are we interpreting this material culture and um, how are we presenting it um, to the masses, really? You know, when uh, for a long time you would enter a museum space if they had a, a traveling exhibit on popular music. Um, usually you're seeing materials that kind of represent star power. You know, it's it's Ringo Starr's drum set or it's Mick Jagger's t-shirt that he wore, uh, you know, 35 years ago. Um, but for me, the drive is really to see narratives like cowpunk and narratives like um, the counterculture in Austin, which we actually did just get to see at the Country Music Hall of Fame. It was so exciting to see. Um, but really, how does the material of the everyday, how do you and I experience music culture and how do we consume it and how do we see ourselves in these musical narratives aside from that star power that artist driven narrative so I think in the long run I really love to work in a museum you know working in collections with popular music I do teach as well at MTSU and at Cumberland University so I'm kind of getting my footing with teaching as well but I think that's the long-range goal but public historians we wear many hats we have to keep our options open Jennifer Rock Thank you for being our guest on MTSU on the Record and for helping to keep both the memory and the future of the Exidian alive. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. We'll be right back. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. MTSU's Office of Student Success launched a blackmail lecture series a few years ago 
as a strategy to improve retention and graduation rates within that student population. As a part of the annual Scholars Academy, the office invites speakers who've achieved professional and personal success to share insights with the students. Travis Stratton, Assistant Manager of the Scholars Academy, discusses this year's speaker, Jay Barnett, and his emphasis on mental health and wellness. 30 Black most students who participated and signed up, where he meets with them bi-weekly uh, via Zoom um, to kind of just talk to them about um, different issues that they're facing, self-esteem, right, resentment, abandonment, healthy masculinity. We talked about emotional intelligence, how to make sure that you're doing everything that you, you can do for your well-being, for your mental, um, so that you can focus on your academics and, you know, focus on graduating and get everything that you need. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.